Good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one underneath the seat in front of you or near you. And if you do not have one that you can call your own, we would love for you to take that one home so that you might be able to read and learn more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And even as we begin, I pray that uh, what we just sang, the Lord would write on our hearts and that we would all believe. No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future, sure. The price, it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. Amen. Amen. Turn our attention to 1 Peter. I'm going to begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 12. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask what we know not that you would teach us, what we have not, that you would give to us. What we are not, you would make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior, amen. Though their status as exiles is a dark backdrop, this reality is drowned out by the new hope that the people of God have. Peter encourages these elect exiles by praising God for their impending inheritance. He shows them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, that salvation brings hope. 
that their new birth has given them a living hope. It gives them an inheritance, a future salvation that can never be taken away, even though they suffer greatly in this life. And this is the stuff of salvation in verses 3 through 12. As we read through 3 through 12, I just encourage you to just look broadly at it today before we begin, and notice just these references. Verse 2, the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, the sufferings of Christ. And this we see in verses 3 through 12 is the stuff of salvation. Verse 5, salvation. Verse 9, salvation. Verse 10, salvation. This helps us see that true courage in this life comes from knowing the end of the story. Salvation, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Four points will frame our time together this morning. God's mercy our inheritance, God's power, our praise. Notice first God's mercy. Look again at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God, Peter tells us, our father, verse 3, has given us new birth. Peter directs our attention to the Father's role in salvation, and the focus is on the Father's initiative in producing life. He has caused us to be born again. Just as no one in this room takes credit for the fact that they were born, it was something that happens to us, so also Peter tells us no one takes credit for being born again. It is something God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has done for us. And the result? New life. He has caused us to be born again. Supernatural life, like life, is a gift. And gifts are received, not earned. And if you're the type of person who makes people earn gifts, you are a bad gift giver. Gifts are received, not earned. And this gift brings life eternal life. All of this, Peter tells us, verse 3, is according to his great mercy. That is, God not treating us as our sins deserve. Our sin, the Bible tells us, deserves judgment and merits wrath. Yet even though we all deserve judgment and merit wrath, God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is merciful bestowing life upon those who are by nature opposed to him. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. And notice the link there. God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Not he loved us after we had repented. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul tells us that life is a supernatural gift, and supernatural life is a mercy. Nothing about us compelled God to act. 
Not one good deed provoked his pleasure. No obligation merited his favor in causing us to be born again, which is why Peter does not simply say mercy. Notice what he says in verse 3. Great mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The mercy of God is one of the most precious realities in all of the world. It is one of the most revealing themes in the Bible, and it is one of the most tragically misunderstood truths about God. If you want to know who God is, if you want to peek into God's heart, it is not in the display of his just wrath or his cosmic power that you should look. Rather, you should set your eyes on his great mercy without minimizing the fullness of his might and his transcendent glory. And then take in the life-changing panorama of God. Only then, when we see his great mercy alongside his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence and his aseity, do we see God in his great mercy being shown to us with utter intentionality and strength. That we as creatures get our deepest glimpse into his sovereignty, not simply when we look at his power, but at his goodness. Not simply at his greatness, but in his gentleness. Not only in his towering might as maker of all things, but in his surprising tenderness toward us as God. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. He is not related to you as he should, as an infinitely holy God. And when we see who he is, then we will relish in his great mercy all the more. Believers, those of you who call on the name of Christ, He has not treated you as your sins deserve. Unbelievers, for those who are here today and do not yet know Christ, he has not treated you as your sins deserve. In fact, he has shown that by bringing you here today. He loves you so much that he brought you here to hear his word sung and read and preached about so that he might open your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. And it is indeed beautiful. And he might open your ears to hear the truth of the gospel, that you might hear the good news of God's saving mercy, that he has caused people to be born again by mercy. Not by legal requirement. Not by asking you to do all of the right things. Not by how you have fulfilled righteousness. But by great mercy, he has caused those who trust in him to be born again. And he will cause you to be born again today. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. If you ask Jesus to make his life your life and his death your death and his resurrection your resurrection. The scripture tells us that he will cause you to be born again. He will set your feet upon a rock. He will not treat you as your sins deserve, not only now, but for all eternity. And on the last day, you will hear the precious words that every believer in this room longs to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you can come to him today. It is as simple as that. Call on Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. 
What keeps you from coming to him today? Pride because people think you're a Christian and you're not? Sin because you think that your sin has separated you so far from God that you cannot approach him? But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love that he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that's when he loved us. Not before we made ourselves right, but when we were dead in our sins. And brothers and sisters, he calls you to himself now. Come to Christ. He will never cast you out. If you have questions about how to trust in Christ, you are in a good place today. We would love to talk to you. Almost everybody here would love to speak with you about the Bible. And I would love to greet you after the service and open God's word with you and point to you in the scripture what it means to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Do not leave this place without coming to him. God's great mercy is not peripheral or incidental to who he is. God is mercy. And his great mercy has caused us to be born again. So the question all of us have to ask is, how do I come to be born again? Drop your eyes down to verse 23. And there you will see that Peter tells us that we have been born again through the imperishable seed of God's word. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The means that God uses, God, who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uses to cause us to be born again according to his great mercy, is the word of God. This is what Paul says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let me ask you, friend, are you giving your attention to God's word? Are you heeding God's word, not reading God's word, not listening to God's word preached on Sunday mornings, not going downstairs to learn more about God's word before the service in an academy, not studying one-on-one God's word with somebody else? Are you heeding God's word and giving it your full attention in this life? Because in this word is the story of salvation and of your redemption. God's mercy, notice second, our inheritance. Look in verse three. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse four. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, verse five for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter explains the result of God causing us to be born again with three different images, all of them describing the exact same reality. Verse three, a living hope. Verse four, an inheritance. Verse five, a salvation. The focus for Peter is, of course, on the hope itself, but notice the quality of the hope that he speaks of in verse three. It is a living hope. A living hope is one that is genuine and vital and real in contrast to a hope that is empty and vain and dead. These Christians who are now scattered all over Asia Minor, suffering persecution, slander, mistreatment, misrepresentation for their belief in Jesus Christ. See that there is hope and they are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. They're not overwhelmed by the sorrows of this life. They can, Peter says, look into the future with the sure confidence of a living hope that incalculable blessing awaits them. 
And their confidence is grounded, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the basis of their living hope. Because he conquered death, their hope is a hope of resurrection. It is a hope of triumph, an end-time victory. Victory. Whatever happens to them now in this world is trivial compared to the living hope of resurrection before them, which is exactly why Peter adds in verse 3 at the very end of the verse, from the dead, their hope and our hope, your hope, is resurrection hope. Though you die, yet shall you live to, verse 4, receive an inheritance. When we're reading through the Bible, we see... In the Old Testament, the question is primarily about genealogy and geography. You have to have the right father, genealogy, and you have to live in the right place, geography. It's about land. You have to have the right things, and if you have the right name, right father, and the right land, and the right place, then you are rightly with the people of God. And if you are outside of that land or not connected to one of those fathers, it does not matter how good you are, you are not one of God's children. But Peter comes and he explodes this category for us in the New Testament, and he says, it is no longer about geography. You don't have to grow up in the right place. You don't have to be born in America or Israel. It's no longer about genealogy. You don't have to be connected to Christian parents. In fact, a great many of you grew up in homes where your parents did not know God, did not love God, hated God, turned away from God, and now you have trusted Christ. And you have kids who, even though you love God and point them to Jesus Christ, might never trust in Christ, which is a hard thing, parents, and we are praying for you. But Peter wants us to see That salvation is no longer based on geography and genealogy. In the New Testament, he tells us that it's no longer in land promised to Israel, but it is this end-time hope that lies before the believer, this inheritance. It is physical, but it transcends the land of Palestine. It is something greater. It's not simply land there. It is a new heavens and a new earth, something greater. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers. That, lands, that word sounds a lot like First Peter and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Though they face suffering now, an inheritance awaits them. Though they face sadness and sorrow and persecution in this life, these elect exiles who are sojourners and strangers in the world have a hope that is before them. They have an inheritance that death cannot ravage. It is imperishable. An inheritance that is unstained by evil. It is undefiled. An inheritance that is unaffected by the passing of time. It is unfading. It cannot spoil, it will never lose its luster or brilliance. It won't become stained or filthy. Satan cannot touch it, death cannot take it, and persecution cannot keep them from it. 
It is beyond the reach of danger. It is unaffected by decay. It will never mold. It won't rot. It's always clean, and it radiates like the sun. There is no expiration date. It is without spot or wrinkle. It never loses value. This salvation, verse 5, will be revealed in the last time when they, when you, are rescued from God's judgment and wrath on the last day. Peter knows something about them that is true of all of us, that we are impatient of delay. When things don't happen according to plan, we get frustrated. When they don't happen in the time frame that we think is reasonable, we become impatient. And then we soon succumb to the weariness of waiting. You think of it, just like children in the room, you tell them to wait, and 30 seconds later, they're thinking, is it over yet? Are we done yet? That is exactly what the Christian life is like. Wait for the eternal inheritance. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That is exactly what it's like, and Peter knows that. He knows that's true of them. He knows that's true of us. Even in the best of circumstances, we are impatient with delay. How much more so when you're insulted and maligned and disparaged and mocked for your faith or neglected and abused and mistreated and victimized and oppressed. How much more impatient are we in those moments when wrong things really are wrong and they are wrongfully happening? So he reminds them, he reminds us that salvation is not deferred because it is not yet prepared, but because the time of its revelation is not yet. Suffering believers in the room, for those of you who are suffering now, perhaps abuse or oppression, or mistreatment, those of you who have been slandered in the past and mocked and scorned. It is not delayed because it's not ready. It is delayed because now is not the time of its revelation. So hope and wait and look forward. Friends, Peter is telling us that we will have strength for today when we keep the bright hope of tomorrow before us. The problem that we all face however, is that some of us do not keep it in focus because we are focused too much on today and so lose sight of the future grace that is before us altogether. We look at what is happening in our circumstances now and we no longer think of what is before us and it does not look bright. While other of us in the room are too much focused on tomorrow and do not live in light of the hope that is afforded us today, right now, in this moment. Moment by moment grace, God is sustaining us. John Bunyan, at the end of book two of the Pilgrim's Progress, describes this ragtag group of pilgrims who are each called to the celestial city. Mr. Ready to Halt, who had been so ready to stop and give up at absolutely every point of the journey, said with the last words, welcome life, and he made it. Mr. Feeble Mind was then also called home. Then next, Mr. Despondency. He received his letter from the celestial city, which read, trembling man, you are summoned to be ready to meet with the king by the next Lord's day and to shout for joy for your deliverance from all of your doubtings. Mr. Despondency's daughter, named Much Afraid, was next. She had lived her entire life in fears that she was unable to shake. 
but she too was called home to her inheritance as well. And because the last words that she heard from her father, Mr. Despondency, were, farewell night, welcome day. She went through the river of death singing. We do not know what circumstances lay before us. And if I'm honest, I do not know what circumstances are in the past of everybody in this room. And none of us are able to know the moments surrounding our death. But we do know this, that all of them have been appointed by God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, an inheritance, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the sufferings of this life will pale in comparison to the glory that is revealed to us. And his great mercy will be all the more sweet because of the sorrows that we have experienced now and the tears that we have shed. Though you die, yet shall you live. God's mercy, our inheritance, notice third, God's power, Look at the end of verse four. Kept in heaven for you. Verse five. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. In the strongest possible terms, Peter emphasizes the security and the certainty of the reward awaiting believers. It is, verse four, kept in heaven for you. The living hope of believers is an inheritance, a salvation. That is, verse 4 tells us, kept in heaven for you. The verb is passive, teaching us that our inheritance is kept for us by another. The reason you woke up a Christian today is not because you're keeping yourself in the faith. The reason that you will not abandon the faith by the end of the day is not because you did a good job keeping yourself in the faith. The reason you woke up a Christian and the reason that you will go to bed a Christian is because God is keeping you in the faith. It is kept divinely by God in heaven beyond the reach of danger. It's not on this earth. It is out of this earth. It is beyond the pain of this life. It is somewhere else and it is for you corporately. God is bringing you in to make you a part of a people for his own inheritance. Peter reminds them that it is kept, verse 5, until the last time, so that as Calvin said, we may not deem it much to give up the world in order that we may enjoy the invaluable treasure of a future life. For those of you who are suffering, life is before you. Calvin continues, and also that we may not be broken down by present troubles, but patiently endure them, being satisfied with future eternal happiness. I love what Calvin says there. It's not just salvation. It is endless happiness. You cannot conceive of how happy you will be. It is impossible for you to fathom How joyous and how wonderful and how magnificent the salvation before us is. Peter then assures these suffering, persecuted Christians in Asia Minor that they will certainly receive this inheritance, that future salvation will definitely be theirs. You can go to the bank on this. 
But what reason does he give them for the assurance that he offers them? They are, verse 5, being guarded by God's power. The idea is that they're, they're shielded or they're protected. But immediately, all of the careful readers in the room are thinking, from what? We know that they are not exempt from suffering in this life. Christians then and now have experienced agonizing pain, both physical and psychological, because of their faith or in the midst of their faith. People who trust in Christ have been traumatized, not simply mistreated, but oppressed. Not oppressed, but abused. Taken advantage of in every way in their life. Christians then and now have experienced great sorrow, and all the first Peter clarifies that we are not exempt from suffering or even death because of our faith, since God's church then and now still experiences persecution and his people, sadness and sorrow. And in friends, unless we see that, we will be sorely disappointed. And I believe that this is one of the great temptations that all of us in this room and every believer faces as we experience the temptation to walk away from the faith. One of the greatest reasons that people walk away from the faith, the Christian faith, is that they were never taught that they would suffer. And they have somehow believed the lie that to believe in Jesus means that their life will be one good thing upon the next until they get to heaven. And some of you in this room who have maybe not been believers very long have realized that the exact opposite is the case. You have believed in Christ and it has gotten harder, and repentance more difficult and costly, and it is more painful. We will turn away from the faith unless we know the truth, that in this life, we will suffer. Our home is not here. It is kept in heaven. It's not on earth. So very quickly, we experience something in this world that is set in opposition to what we have wrongly conceived about our faith. Brothers and sisters, though the end game is bright for the Christian, there is suffering and pain and sorrow in this life. We know that they're not exempted from suffering, and we know that they are not without sin. Christians, genuine Christians, then and now, have battled indwelling sin. Battled, not just repented of it, but battled it over the course of their life, constantly trying to put it death unsuccessfully, and then seeking more help and seeking more grace, and then growing a little bit, but growing little by little and still plagued by the sin of their life. So in what sense are they shielded or guarded if they're not without suffering or sin? Peter meant that God preserves believers so that they will receive the final reward, and experience the joy of the living hope inheritance salvation. But notice that Peter does not merely say that they are protected so that they will receive the living hope inheritance salvation. He says that believers are guarded, verse 5, through faith. Obtaining the living hope inheritance salvation does not bypass them as human beings as if they're simply robots. Rather, through faith, it communicates this continuing trust or continuing faithfulness in the faith. Peter did not envision faith the way that we often speak of faith, as if it's some decisionalistic moment in our life. We profess faith, and then we move on. 
Peter envisioned faith as once where we trust in Christ by faith, and then day by day, we trust Christ by faith. Moment by moment, we are trusting him by faith, all the way until we reach the culmination of that faith, the vision of the celestial city. That's how Peter envisioned faith. Moment by moment, through faith, they're being guarded as they press forward into the hope of that faith. Peter tells us that genuine faith persists until the day of redemption. There is no final salvation without continued faith, which means that God's protection cannot be severed from our believing. You can't not persist in faith, but somehow be a recipient of his protection and salvation. You can't be a recipient of his protection and salvation and not be persisting in faith. God's power shields us from sin and unbelief, which would cause us to ultimately fall away. Not from wrestling with sin and unbelief, but from sin and unbelief that would ultimately cause us to fall away. If, as one commentator noted, God's power plays no role in our faith, then it seems that his power accomplishes nothing in our making it to the end, since it is precisely sin and unbelief that causes us to fall away from God. If God's power does not protect us from sin and unbelief, it is hard to see what it does. How is God protecting us until the end of his, of his guarding plays no role in our continuing in the faith? Peter in verse five tells us that God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is sustained, which is hope for us. Brothers and sisters, God will preserve your faith through sin and unbelief, through trial and suffering and slander and mistreatment and abuse and oppression, and divorce, and rejection, and sin, and scorn, and being wrongfully fired, and being mistreated, and being taken advantage of by other people, and so much more. It drives you through faith into deeper repentance and deeper dependence simultaneously. It takes you places that you would never go on your own, which is what faith always does. It presses us deeper into the heart of God, Faith, Peter tells us, like hope, is a supernatural gift of God, and he fortifies us by it so that we persist in faith with a living hope until the day we obtain our inheritance, salvation. And that is an encouraging thought when we consider who is delivering this word to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the 12, one of the three, first among equals, chief among the disciples, the one, the rock upon whom the church is built, denier of Jesus Christ. And after having been sustained through the darkest days of his life, Peter exhorts these Christians with the full knowledge of persecution and pain before them. He encourages and exhorts us, you, that God will guard you from sin and unbelief that will ultimately cause you to fall away. I know that some of you have super sensitive consciences and you are the person in the room who's always thinking, have I fallen away? Have I done the thing that finally kind of kicked me out? Peter gives you assurance. God will preserve you. You won't preserve yourself. Stop trying. God will guard you until the day of Christ Jesus through faith. 
So what do you do? Keep the faith. Day by day, moment by moment, prayer by prayer, in one second and out of another, keep the faith. Our faith receives its stability from God's power. God's mercy, our inheritance, God's power, notice fourth, our praise. Now I want you to look at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We end where Peter began praising God. As someone messaged me this morning, C.S. Lewis said, that is inward health becoming audible. The theme of the entire paragraph, the one long and complex sentence in Greek that begins in verse 3 and goes all the way down to verse 12 is that God is to be blessed. God is to be praised for the salvation that he has given to Christians. Blessing God or praising God is not some prosaic formula It begins the section with joy so that there is a gladness throughout the entire section. It it radiates through the entire section. And the blessing is directed to God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a better translation of the text. Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God is not Jesus, uh, Jesus God but God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that helps us see that there is no subordination here. There is no sense in which Jesus is a creature. But though helpful, that's not the main point. Peter's theme, and my goal now for all of us, is to help us see the importance of that first phrase. Blessed be God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's response to God causing his people to be born again and raising Jesus Christ from the dead and giving us a living hope and providing us an imperishable and undefiled and unfading inheritance in heaven and guarding us through faith for salvation ready to be revealed is to praise God. Blessed be God. And if that is Peter's response before he even communicates, that should be our response as well, brothers and sisters. The truth is that he wrote these things, and as he wrote about them and reflected upon them, it caused him to burst forth into praise for God. Peter could have begun in any number of ways, just like a boring lecturer. Today, I present my topic to you. It's on soteriology. I'm going to give you my main points. God, new birth, resurrection, hope, inheritance. And after we have looked at each of these closely and I've expounded upon them sufficiently, we will conclude with a moment of prayer. But that's not how Peter began. Peter began by saying, praise God. Blessed be God, the one who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that tells me from this text is that that should not be our response either. Peter begins with exaltation and blessing and wonder because these realities have produced them in his heart. And when he considers these things, he does not say them coldly or flatly or scientifically, though they are clearly true. He says, blessed be God. He does it here and he does it throughout the letter, chapter four, verse 11. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. 
Chapter 5, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter, throughout the course of this letter, breaks out again and again and again in praise and blessing as he writes about these truths, as he is reflecting upon them. I envision Peter sitting there at his desk and he's just fastly scribbling for these people and he's thinking, they are going to be encouraged by this because I remember the day that I blew it and God's mercy is what sustained me. And then he's writing to them, praise be to God, and he just can't, can't keep himself without overflowing in a wonder of thanks for what God is doing. And that's, at least I envision that because that's kind of what it looks like in preparing the sermon sometimes. Just, mm. so, and if not, then he probably did it more godly than that. But I envision him doing it in a way like that where he's just overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has done and how God has preserved and shown mercy and greatness through the resurrection of Christ and how there's now hope before him. And if anybody had a reason to quit, it was Peter. You have blown it. Yes, you are a sinner through and through. You have wrecked your life. You must repent and trust in Christ. But you did not deny Jesus to his face three times. Peter did. And you can imagine that gaze when he saw Jesus as the gospels tell us how much shame he would have felt. And now writing to these people saying, I know you're suffering, but I can tell you that something great is before you. And there is mercy for you. There is forgiveness for you. There is hope for you. And there is peace with God for you. Blessed be God. Once again, Calvin helps us. Peter invites the faithful to spiritual joy, which can swallow up all the opposite feelings of the flesh. The main object of the epistle is to raise us up above the world in order that we may be prepared and encouraged to sustain the spiritual contests of our warfare. For this end, the knowledge of God's benefits availeth much. For when their value appears to us, all other things will be deemed worthless, especially when we consider what Christ and his blessings are, for everything without him is but dross. This is why he blessed God, who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, telling us something about God that Peter desperately wants us to know, that he is father. And how does a father relate to his children or treat a child, or at least how should he? Psalm 103 helps us. Just go back, read it later, listen to it now. Blessed be the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, 
nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Looking out on a weary world, God shows compassion. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Looking at a band of misfit disciples scattered across Asia Minor, Peter says, what do they need to know? God is Father. He is compassionate. He loves you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Come to him. He will never cast you out. True courage comes from knowing the end of the story. Peter Kreft, in his book on heaven, says that when we come to understand our future in Christ, it produces the greatest psychological revolution imaginable. Utter fearlessness now marks our lives. He writes this. Now suppose... Both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose God took you upon a crystal ball trip into the future, and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch on a penny. Just a few quick applications for us as we close our time. First, truth does not make us belligerent. It causes us to worship. Truth is not a weapon. Truth causes us to worship. Has truth done that to you? Or has it made you belligerent and angry? And if you want to know, ask the people around you. Ask people who will speak to you truthfully. And if you don't know if they will, ask them, can you speak to me without fear of consequence? Second, God's mercy is not a license to sin. Truth does not make us belligerent. It causes us to worship. And second, God's mercy is not a license to sin. It gives us confidence that though we sin and are filled with unbelief, God will not treat us as our sin and unbelief deserves. God's mercy gives us confidence because he will not treat us as our sins deserve. Have you used mercy as a license to sin? Go read the book of Romans. Paul says, may it never be. Do not presume upon the kindness of God. The fact that he has not destroyed you in the midst of your sin and opened up the ground literally beneath your feet and swallowed you to an eternal hell is a mercy. It is not a license to sin. It gives us confidence that he will not treat us as our sin and unbelief deserves. Third, Salvation does not make us indifferent to this life. 
but hopeful because of the life that is before us. You see, one of the worst things that can happen is that we think as Christians that nothing matters anymore. It doesn't matter. But salvation does not make us indifferent. Peter did not say, hey, you know, put on your big boy pants, exiles, scrunch up your face, and act like grown-ups. He says, look before you. The days are dark and they are hard and you are to be faithful in the midst of them. And he will remind us as we progress into the letter, what does that look like? We are to suffer well. Particularly, he speaks to people who are prone to be abused. Wives who are abused by husbands and people who are a part of a country who are abused by a Roman overlord. And he tells them, what are they to do? They are to be faithful in the midst of that. He tells them that they are to suffer well, and that's what suffering well looks like, being faithful even when they are oppressed. He doesn't say be indifferent. He says, look before you. You're not looking far enough. You're looking right here, and you need to look there. Some of you are looking right here, and that is why you are so frustrated with this life. It will never give you what you want, even if all of your votes go the way that you want, and everybody does everything that you say. You are not looking out far enough. Peter says, look farther out. And some of you have despaired so much because you can no longer see. You're you're trying to see something out there, but you don't realize that that hope is for today. Hope for right now. Those of you battling depression, those of you prone to melancholy, those of you prone to despair, and the people in the room who spiral downward, this will mean this and this, and then that's why we'll never have a car, and, and just down. There is hope for today, right now, in Christ. And as we remind ourselves of that hope, we turn ourselves to a new song. Hail thou once despised Jesus, singing of great truths of redemption. Let us sing boldly and give praise to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy that is ours by faith in Christ. And we ask that you would help us that you would help our unbelief and that you would forgive us of our sin and help us to throw it off. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us in Scripture and for the mercy that you have shown to us in Christ and for the salvation that is ours through faith. We pray now that you would help us to sing and to declare our allegiance to Christ afresh. And we ask all of this. In the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?